Good morning. First, I'd like to say uh, to all the people that stopped me in the hall this morning and said that they were praying for me and they were looking forward to what I have to say. I hope they still feel that way later. Um, two people called me preacher. One person called me predja, which I'm not. But thank you anyway, it did my heart good. When Don first sent out his email quite a while ago about his summer series of the parables, I read it and the first line said, for all you aspiring preachers, and I thought, hmm, that's not me. But as I read through the list, I thought, hmm, maybe I would like to do that. And I made the mistake one day in conversation of saying that to him. And another month passed by and he texted me if I was interested in doing this. So before I ever do anything I've never done before, I always call my wife. And I said, uh, Dawn's texting me. She said, oh, I said, well, this is what I'm thinking. So we shared some laughter. <laughs> it was kind, friendly laughter, it's all good. And in her defense, I kind of dropped a bombshell because June the 5th at 11 a.m., my phone calls usually are, have you made me lunch? <laughs> Not, I'm thinking of having a sermon in the summer. Anyway, I've had uh, these things bouncing around in my head ever since then, and it's high time they come out. And in my mind, this goes fairly well, so if there's any hope for that becoming a reality, we should pray first. <laughs> so would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this day that you've given us, this beautiful Sunday. We thank you for the rain that we had yesterday. Uh, was it our perfect timing? No, but it is your perfect timing, and it was a blessing to see. Thank you for these parables that we've been going through this summer. Thank you for leaving some room for discussion. And I pray that uh, where my words fumble, that your weird words would take over. In Jesus' name, amen. So I use the NIV Bible. The, the passage that I received is, was Matthew 13, 31, and 35, the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. So I will read, start off with reading them. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He, stole, he told still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. In verse 34 and 35, it says, Jesus spoke all things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. In Psalm 78, 2, it says, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. In this passage, Jesus made it clear that this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus' use of parables was fulfilling yet another prophecy. The first thing I noticed about this parable and many others was the reference to the kingdom of heaven. And that's what kind of caught my attention. I thought, what does that actually mean? Do we really understand that phrase? Do we say, oh yeah, that's a church phrase. I understand what that means. It was even used the other day in our, in our meeting, Darren, and nobody flinched. I was probably the only one that noticed. I know most of you could give a one-word answer what that means. Am I the only one who's confused by this? So Google to the rescue 
And the opening line of the first article that popped up read, some Bible terminology can be confusing in modern times. Because we are so far removed from when it, went, when it was written, and many Christians are confused about this, what this phrase means. Hmm, that might be me. So I quizzed some of my family, and they all gave me different answers, which I was hoping for, none of which were wrong, but it let me know that maybe some clarification was necessary. We assume that it means heaven once we finally get there, but it also exists while we are still on earth. At the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry in Matthew 3, 4, and 4, 17, it says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which would be referring to the present. In Matthew 4, 23, and 9, 25, it says, and he went into their, king, into their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, explicitly connecting the kingdom of heaven with the gospel. Jesus made sure that his disciples were all preaching the same message, following up with a call to repentance, reminding them that rejecting the kingdom is eternal, has eternal consequences in Matthew 3, 12. Now also the kingdom of heaven is both present and future tense. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 6, 10, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer only makes sense if the kingdom has not yet fully come. On earth as it is in heaven, not only is, is his will being done in heaven, but his kingdom will grow on earth as well. So, the kingdom of heaven is believing the gospel. It is a genuine offer from God to rule in our hearts and to those who believe in his name. Submitting to the kingdom brings true freedom. And those who resist are in bondage in Ephesians 2. Second, being a citizen of the kingdom should motivate us to build the kingdom through proclaiming the gospel. Thirdly, the kingdom of heaven provides comfort and hope for Christians. God is king over all circumstances in this life, and no matter what happens, it will all be good when his kingdom comes at the second coming. If we are part of the kingdom, we must believe the gospel, we must proclaim the gospel while we are here on earth, so, that Jesus, so Jesus refers to the kingdom of God being like yeast. Matthew 13, 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. The concordance I used gave a simple explanation of the meaning of this parable. People who profess to belong to God will grow in numbers without being stopped. Pretty basic. So I dug further. I found this comparison. The kingdom of heaven is alive, it is everywhere, it takes attention and patience to grow and it transforms everything it touches. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is alive, it's everywhere, it takes attention and patience to grow and it transforms everything it touches. That's more like it. And then it asks the question, where do you see the kingdom of heaven alive around you? And do you nurture it and allow it to grow like yeast in bread dough? So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, a microorganism that is alive, a member of the fungus family with 1,500 different species, some like baker's yeast causing bread to rise and grape juice turning into wine. Different types of yeast can be found everywhere on skins of fruit and plants in the soil, on people's skin, in deep sea environments and in our digestive system. So maybe when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, 
He is telling his listeners that the kingdom of heaven is alive and growing, just like yeast and bread dough. Maybe he's saying the kingdom of heaven is everywhere, just like the yeast that spreads through all the dough or yeasts that are found everywhere on this planet. Once yeast is added to bread dough, it causes the bread to rise and is unstoppable until enough time has passed and it's run its course. This reminds me of my mother and many of you probably too. My mother probably made 100,000 buns in her life or more, which I ate, I did the math, probably 25% of. <laughs> Our mom was a storyteller, and I'm pretty sure that's where I got it from. She would pick a flower from her garden, bring it in the house, and marvel at its beauty. She would take her camera and go outside when the sun was setting or when there was a rainbow and take a picture and later talk to us about God's creation. She would make bundo. Mom would point to the bowl of dough that was slowly expanding way above the rim, and she would say, look at that. That bowl was one-third full before I added two tablespoons of yeast. She told us kids countless stories, till her eyes were rolling, I'm pretty sure. But the payoff for listening to those stories came later. Our mom passed away at age 79 from dementia, so the last few years of her life were very difficult. But she, she never forgot who we, are, who we were, even though she called me John, introduced me as John all the time, which is my middle name and also my uncle's name, so I'm not exactly sure who she thought I was. But she feels the same about both of us, so that's fine. <laughs> she had so much to say, she never forgot us, but she had so much to say, but the one thing that she forgot or, or lost was her ability to speak, her ability to tell stories. And we would go visit her, and you could see it in her eyes that she was trying to say something. It was almost always stories about past, probably even maybe even before I was born, many of them. Um, she would use actions and the odd word that she, would, she could try to get out. And sometimes five or maybe 20 minutes later, I would clue into what she was saying, and she would, her eyes would light up. And later, Teresa would say, how did you get that from that, and I, I would say because I used to listen to her stories. Just like the scriptures, the Bible tells us to hide the scriptures in our heart, and when we need them, they will be there. Could also be said about these parables that we are studying, and for mom's life lesson stories. Hiding them in my heart made for some great memories. Mom was working yeast into our lives until we were permeated. So if I jump back a few verses to Matthew 13, 31, and 32, it reads, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of the seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in it. Jesus does not directly interpret this parable. However, I think the fact that it appears in Matthew Mark and Luke could suggest its importance. Jesus predicts the amazing growth of the kingdom of heaven. A mustard seed is quite small, but it grows into a significant plant. The point of this parable could be that something big and, as big and blessed, the kingdom of God, had humble beginnings, just like the life of Christ had humble beginnings and now has worldwide influence. This is the size of a mustard seed compared to a dime, very small. Um, when you plant the mustard seed in the ground, if you don't put expensive, colorful seed treatment on it, it's almost impossible to find. So you just have to have faith. The drill got emptier, it must be in the ground, but 
two weeks later, there's your proof that it has actually been put in the ground and it is starting to come up. Birds perching in its branches, they must have either had very small birds or very, big, or very big mustard back then. Turns out it's the latter. It was a mustard called black mustard and it grew nine to 10 feet tall. It was in my mustard yesterday. And the only thing that's perching in it is grasshoppers. <laughs> we'll leave that where it is. A rabbit trail that this parable has a tendency to take us on is the well-used phrase, faith as small as a mustard seed, or ye of little faith. We've all heard that one. There's a story in Matthew 17, a story about Jesus taking his disciples up on a high mountain, and suddenly his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Peter says, Lord, should we even be here? And no sooner a cloud covered the disciples, and a voice says, this is my son whom I loved, who I love, who I am well pleased with. Listen to him. After a few verses, a few verses later, Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. So in verse 14, when they, came down, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And in verse 17, Jesus says to his disciples, you unbelieving, perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I, must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Now these verses, that verse 17 kind of reminds me of me. How many times have I been either working with people or had people working with me when I have given them a task that they couldn't do. And I come with an attitude like, I'll show you how it's done. But I'm pretty sure if I called them a perverse generation and asked them how much longer I needed to put up with them, they probably wouldn't show up for work the next day. But the disciples are a different sort. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible. You have little faith. Is that me most days? Do I have, a, or there's a little bit of faith I have enough? Or why when things go right or things work out, do I always first thing say that's just a coincidence when I know that there's no such thing? So to think of a practical example in life of, of faith, I think about raising our girls. And you're probably thinking, don't talk about your kids. And my kids are thinking, don't talk about us. But what else have I done in life that has stretched my faith as much as raising a family? I mean, having three girls has been beyond amazing. Wouldn't trade a minute of it for the world. But sending them to school, watching them make friends, encouraging them to join sports teams at various levels, what could go wrong? I could talk about each of them, telling about the things God has done in their lives, but I've chosen daughter number two. There were a number of years when she was put through the ringer. The purpose of this story is to give God the glory. And just like Taylor said, I uh, 
went over this many times so that it would get easier, and uh, I know I can do this, so bear with me, please. So to respect the privacy, I'm going to, to respect her privacy, I'm going to call her Curly. And <laughs> Reader's Digest version, I promise. And first of all, without the prayers, tears, and endless advocating of my wife, this dad would not have a story to tell. I'm going to skip to age 13, kind of when hard days started. We decided to take her out of school three months before the school year ended. Curly was not being treated well in the social aspect of school. We had a young girl who wouldn't smile anymore, didn't want to eat, thought that she was ugly. And even after a number of meetings, this situation wasn't going to get any better. And we were going to homeschool, but that turned into pretty much no school. My, wife, my wise wife told me that she first needs to get better. So my sidekick, she became. Where I went, she went. What I did, she did. We had a teacher tell us a few years before this, don't let school get in the way of your child's education. Within that year, Curly was diagnosed and treated for scoliosis, and the following year had her appendix burst and needed emergency surgery. That was about the time Teresa and I looked at each other and said, how much more can this kid take? That was a week I will never forget. You see, there's an answered prayer that happened that week that I promised God I would tell. We obviously had a very sick young girl on our hands, a shy young girl who didn't want to stay herself for the night, so I stayed with her. The first night was not too bad because of morphine. The second night was starting out the same way. Around 2 a.m. that night, through her tears, she says, Dad, am I going to die? Your kid's not supposed to ask you that. And usually when hard questions are asked, mom is there to help you. So I said to her, let's pray. Ask God to take away the pain and let you sleep for the rest of the night. And by answering that prayer, you and I will promise to tell people. We won't keep it to ourselves. She agreed, but before we could pray, a nurse walked in and offered her more Tylenol. When she left, we prayed the prayer, and within five minutes, she falls asleep till morning. A few days later was Saturday, and she was doing much better. I think I spent the night at home that night, but Sunday morning came, which is typical. We did our typical things. I dropped Teresa and her mom off at the hospital. Her mom had come for moral support. I brought the other two girls to Sunday school. And even though I had been part of Chad's class, men's class, I decided to skip. I had had a rough week. Surely I could have one hour to myself. I was going to skip and go get my coffee and do something fun like look at machinery or something. So I got my coffee. I was driving down the, the service road and this conviction came over me. You said you'd tell your story. And I'm like, come on, one hour. So I went to the hospital. Everybody was sitting in the, in the visiting room. She was, we were thinking she would get uh, released that day. And I sat down in the corner, because that's where you hide from your convictions, in the corner. 15 seconds went by and I looked at Curly and I said, I think I need to go tell our story. And she says to me, that's what we're supposed to do. So I headed back to church. Now I was 45 minutes late. 
I walked up the stairs. It was dark and quiet. Um, see, coincidence would have it that the Right Now Media video they were watching had just stopped and they had some time to kill. I looked at Chad and I apologized for being late. And what he said to me was, that's okay, we were waiting for you. So I sat down and I told, my, told everybody the way that my week had gone. I told them about the prayer that we had prayed and I told them about the promise I had made to tell people. So this was, was my first chance. So we had a good, good time visiting there about that. And before you go thinking, oh, what a man of faith, what a great man of faith, this is the truth. Every time I told that story back then, the first thought that came into my head was, maybe it was the Tylenol. Maybe it was the drugs that took away the pain. And I have to convince myself otherwise. A year later, I found myself in one of those sleepless nights, starting to think about Curly, and thought, we did it. We made it through all that crap. She's in high school, she has a couple of friends, she has her driver's license. And then I started thinking about the people that helped us along the way. Teresa, for being mom, Debbie called and said, we're doing school here, she's welcome to join. Myron took the kids to the lake sometimes when they were hungry. Connor always had an interesting reason to take a break. <laughs> Becky called and asked if Curly would like to come to work with her. There she learned how to decorate cakes and make Becky cinnamon buns. Dr. Liddell fixed her scoliosis. Mr. Shoemaker went above and beyond to help her get a great start in high school. Mrs. Peters took this fragile girl and put her on her volleyball team. Jana was her friend. And on and on. Then it dawned on me, we didn't do this, God did this. Then I realized that all the people that I've just listed here were believers. God used the people from his kingdom to give a small part of themselves, as small as a mustard seed, to plant in a young girl's life. Pretty sure Becky used the yeast. Curly went on to Bible school, working at Sunny Bray for three summers, one of which, which was spent in the kitchen, sometimes making cinnamon buns got through three, four years of university to become a teacher. She got married. She volunteers as a youth leader. She is the tallest of my daughters. I don't think birds have landed on her. But I think there are some youth in this church who have leaned on her. People who belong to the kingdom of God are called to bear fruit. And I believe helping a young girl not slip through the cracks is bearing fruit. So to wrap this up, this is Farmer Gary. This is what Farmer Gary has learned in his life. If you want God to use you, you have to put yourself out there. You have to make yourself available. When opportunity knocks, take it. When taking a chance feels right, do it. When God wants you to walk through a door, he will open it, and if he doesn't, it will close. God cannot use you if you're hiding in your basement, yes, Sometimes we need to go there to recharge or to listen to him or two or three times a week in the winter to watch Oiler games. Just like this list of people that helped us, most of them probably don't realize the impact they had. I, for one, would like to pay it forward. We can probably all think of somebody 
in either our family, our church, or our lives that could use a hand. I, for one, would like to make a difference in bearing, in bearing fruit. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible. Thank you.